Welcome back. This is Mind Redefined, lifting the stigma around mental health. And my name is Scott Swanstrom. I am your host for this podcast. And today we have a special guest, Julie Emmer. Julie is a licensed clinical social worker, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a master certified addictions professional. She is an outpatient therapist in private practice in Maitland, Florida, just north of Orlando. She has 30 years of experience as a licensed therapist, as well as 25 years as a graduate level college instructor. And uh, today she is joining us on a conversation regarding domestic violence and mental health. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Scott. Thrilled that you would join us today in having a very important conversation in regards to domestic violence. There's a lot of mystery in regards to this. There's a lot of misnomers, I think, that the entertainment industry have created in regards to this topic. But before we jump into it, I'd like to ask you, what one thing are you celebrating today? I am still celebrating Mother's Day. As you know, it was two days ago, but I have two adult daughters and one of them was able to drive down from South Carolina and spend the weekend with me. And she's not leaving till tomorrow. So I'm still basking in my Mother's Day right now. That's fantastic. I love that. Uh, the fact that she is uh, continuing that on. We celebrate birthdays all month long. And uh, <laughs> I, I would be a proponent for Mother's Day really being at least a week. So, all right. So let's jump right into our conversation, Julie. Would you start by explaining for us what is domestic violence and how prevalent is it? There's a couple of different ways to define domestic violence. Technically, domestic violence refers to any violence within the home. So it could include child abuse and elder abuse and that kind of thing. But most people, when they use the term domestic violence, they're talking about intimate partner violence. And that is violence between a person and their intimate partner. And they don't necessarily have to live in the same household for it to count as intimate partner violence. The vast majority of survivors of domestic violence are women. One out of three women are a target of either sexual or physical assault by an intimate partner in their lifetime. So that's not including emotional abuse, stalking, financial abuse, just the sexual and physical assault, one in three women. But it's not just women. Men can be targets of intimate violence as well. So we do have um, intimate partner violence within the LGBTQ plus community. So it, this isn't just a heterosexual issue. And in fact, in some of that subpopulation, there's even more violence than there is between heterosexual couples, particularly trans women are targets of violence in all sectors of society. So beyond physical and sexual abuse, we do have emotional abuse, name calling, public humiliation, gaslighting, stalking, financial abuse, where the person might limit their access to finances or take their finances. So lots of different ways to define it. So what are some of the red flags that a person might become abusive in a relationship? One of the first warning signs is one that is easily missed, and that is love at first sight. You know, if you were talking about the entertainment industry, you know, all these rom-coms that, you know, the eyes lock across the room and suddenly you found your person. OK, that's a really serious warning sign because love doesn't really happen that fast. And when when a relationship happens super quickly, you're on the second date and you're picking out baby names and that kind of thing. Very often, and this is particularly true with heterosexual couples where the male is the abuser, it starts to shift very quickly into you belong to me. You don't need to be around other people. You know, you complete me. You remember that line from the movie. 
they get jealous, you know, tell me about Joe in accounting. I think you've been flirting with him. And the next thing you know, it's like, why are you wearing that dress? You know, are you doing that because of Joe in accounting or, you know, so it goes from, well, I just love you so much that I just can't imagine being without you turns into very controlling behavior. Looking at um, their social media and saying, I don't want you to have male friends on Facebook. Who are you messaging here? You don't need to be around other people. And a big one is the gaslighting of that didn't happen. What are you talking about? That never happened. And when somebody gaslights you like that, you start to wonder about your own sanity. So it's very hard to confront when, when you've got the gaslighting. These are just some of the warning signs. There's many, many. But early on, that falling in love at first sight and, and immediately ownership of the person is a serious red flag. So a lot of that comes down to control and power. And OK, so when a person is in a violent relationship, why don't they just leave? Okay, this is a complicated one, and it depends a lot on how long they've been in that relationship. The most dangerous time to leave a violent relationship is at the time that you've made a decision to leave. That's when everything blows up. That's much more likely to be like possibly a murder situation or a murder-suicide situation. It puts other people in danger. If I'm in danger and I run to my mother's home, I'm putting my mother in danger. Because he could come over there with a shotgun and escalate the situation. That's not an uncommon scenario at all. But barring the fear of death and fear of injury, it also becomes complicated if there are children involved. Is it really bad enough to take the kids away from their dad? Am I going to lose the kids? You know, he's threatened to take the kids away from me. Can I manage things financially without this relationship? Am I going to make things worse for everyone? And also, he'll, you know, things cycle around and he'll say, well, he's promised that he's going to counseling. He's promised he's going to quit drinking. He's promised everything is, is going to change. And he really seems serious about it this time. And, you know, there's just so much ambivalence back and forth. Wanting it, you know, there were some good times when they first fell in love at first sight. It becomes really complicated. And it, it again, is very dangerous to leave. And we haven't always had a place to go. But especially during COVID, it's not like people can just relocate quickly and easily, even if they have the financial resources, which is somewhat unlikely. So can an addiction or mental illness cause a person to be violent in a situation like this? Yes and no. OK, it can certainly compound the situation. But more often, I've heard it used as an excuse, as in, well, I was drunk. Drunk people do stuff. You know, you were drunk, too. So things just got out of hand and it becomes an excuse for that. I've heard mental health issues as an excuse for, you know, you shouldn't be upsetting me. You know, I have a mental health problem. And so you need to, you know, you need to make sure that I'm not upset or else it's on you. And so you see how it's it's turned into more of an excuse, even though obviously it would add to, you know, the person's ability to handle their anger and that kind of thing. But the central point and the central piece, as you said it already, the motivator for violent relationships is the desire to have power over a person and to control the other person. That is central to everything else. All the other stuff are just excuses and additional factors, but power and control is right at the center of all that. So another scenario that 
I've heard before, and I'm sure you have heard before, uh, where someone approaches you with a statement, they're aware of a domestic violent relationship, and they say, aren't some relationships just stormier than others? How much of this should be considered none of my business? How would you respond to them? It's understandable to feel that way. Okay. And that's why we don't call the abuse hotline automatically when there's a domestic violence situation, unless there's a child or an elderly person involved or a disabled person. But here's the thing. We have been very slow as a culture to provide resources for women to get out of these situations. The first battered women's shelter in the entire country opened in 1973. Prior to that, we didn't even have battered women's shelters to go to. And it's not like they popped up on every corner in 1973. You know, there's still many places where there's no place to safely go. You know, even just as protections for women in our culture, Do you know when it became illegal in all 50 states to rape or beat your wife? That was 1994. Oh, wow. When it became a federal law. 93, the last two states gave in and said, okay, we'll make this illegal. But prior to that, people really believed that the marriage contract was was an ownership contract. And there were certain rights that people had toward the partner in the marital relationship. So we have to make sure that these women have a safe place to go, that it's possible to do it safely without endangering themselves and their children. And that's everybody's business. I think we all wanna live in a society where a person can choose to be safe and choose to have a safe life for themselves and their children. So how would you provide hope to someone who is struggling with domestic violence? Well, this comes up in my practice all the time. And quite often, people who are in violent relationships also grew up in violent households and don't really have the understanding of what a healthy relationship even looks like. They've been gaslit and abused by their partner for so long that they've been led to believe that the abuse is their fault and that they brought it on themselves or, you know, they should have behaved differently. So they take responsibility for what happened. So the first thing that I do is tell them no one deserves to be abused. No one deserves to be beaten or assaulted or any of the other things that I talked about and that resources are readily available. The tricky part is convincing a person that they're worth being treated well. But I really believe that every person should have the God-given right to walk through their front door and know that they are safe and know that they are respected. You know, your roommate doesn't have to love you, but they certainly have to respect you. And they cert- you certainly need to be safe in your home. And that should be a basic right for everyone. Julie, that's well said. Thank you so much. Our final question, if a patient or a family member wanted to learn more about services that are available, where would they find more information? Well, if they were local, say they were in Duval or Baker Canning, the Battered Women's Shelter, Hubbard House is fantastic. And it's like many other battered women's shelters in that they provide a safe, anonymous place to stay where kids can go to. They provide legal help, financial help, food, shelter, one-stop shop for getting a person safely into the next phase of their life. And those are all across the United States. If you're not within Hubbard House, you can call the national hotline and find the resources that you need. Their number is 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to their website, thehotline.org, and they have a live chat feature on their website so that if you don't want to be overheard talking to them, you can chat with them quietly. There's a lot of safety features built in. 
those are some great resources and we are going to share those again on our Facebook page for Mind Redefined. And Julie, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Hopefully this helped pull back the curtain on something that's mysterious for a lot of folks in our community. Thank you again for your time and we hope you have a good one. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. 